The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome to you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. To everybody here in the room and everybody gathered in your homes or wherever you are online, welcome to you. And speaking of online, I just wanted to throw out a reminder that if you ever want to catch up on any sermons here at the Springs, we've got a sermon podcast. And if you don't know what a podcast is, I'm sure some of our young, hip folks will tell you, or you can call somebody your grandchildren, your children, but it's basically a place where you can listen to the audio of any of our former sermons, and it's easy to find. It's at thesprings.cc, and then just click on messages, and you can find, you can listen on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on your phone, on your computer, but we've got all the sermons from this series in Revelation so far, and we've got sermons from years past, so if you ever want to catch up or revisit something, thesprings.cc, click on messages. And so we're continuing in Revelation, Citizens of a Different Kingdom, this morning. And last week, Ben was in Revelation chapter 5. And this morning, we're going to continue in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more. And thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you thanks today. We're grateful for your word. For these words, and we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit in reading this text, in learning from it, in being changed by it, and living it out in our lives. I ask you for the gift of preaching, Lord, this morning. I ask that you would lead this church into your unified future. We praise you, Lord Jesus. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.
This past week, I watched an online presentation by a small businessman. And he said that later that night, he was gonna be giving a toast at a party that his company was throwing. And it was a party that they'd been planning for some time, actually, a party that they'd been planning since March 13th, when the pandemic really began to spread in his community. And he said he got all his people, his employees, his staff together, and he gathered them up and he said, on October 1st, we're gonna stand in a circle and I'm gonna give a toast, and we are going to celebrate the fact that nobody lost their job, nobody's pay was cut, and the company was saved. And indeed, during this webinar last week, he said, I'm going to give that toast later tonight. We're all gonna stand around, all of us, and we're gonna celebrate the fact that everyone's still here, the company is saved. And I couldn't help but think of John in Revelation 7. Because in Revelation 7, John gives us the future of the church's celebration. John gives us a picture. He gives us this heavenly, triumphant, amazing image. John says, hey, it's March 13th and chaos is abounding, but October 1st lies ahead. And this is the future for the church. So when theologians help us think about things, they like to use labels and categories. And one of the labels or categories they use to help us think about the church is to talk about the church militant and the church triumphant. So the church militant is us. Right here, right now, all across the world, it's the present church in the middle of the struggle, day in and day out. The church militant is us all across the world, right here and now. And the church triumphant is that great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. The church triumphant is our forebears in the faith who have already passed on, who are already safe with Jesus, who are already even now surrounding the throne of God and praising the Lamb. And so Revelation 7 is this picture of the church triumphant. It's this picture of the church that is even now praising God and John is saying that is your future. He's saying that's your October 1st. That's the future unified celebration of the people of God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And he says that's what you must begin to live into right now. So let's, let's explore John's vision a little bit more together this morning, starting back in verse 9 of chapter 7. He says, after this I looked... And there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. We've been talking about Revelation as a mirror, about the book of Revelation as this mirror that we hold up and we look in the mirror and we see the image that comes to us from Revelation and we say, is that us? 
Is there a resemblance in that reflection? Is that our community? Is that our country? Is that our church, our struggle? And so we look at the image reflected to us in Revelation 7 this morning of the church triumphant, and we ask the same question. Is that us? Is there a resemblance there between the church triumphant and the church militant? Do we reflect that? And I think the answer this morning is yes and no. Yes and no. No, we don't live up to this glorious, heavenly, idealized Revelation 7 picture. That's our future, but we don't live up to it. And yet, we do reflect it. The church today, even now, reflects this amazingly diverse image. And some of you might be thinking, Brett, how can you possibly say yes? No, we don't, we don't look anything like that. That's not what the church looks like. I know, I know that's where some of you are. I know some of you are, you're fed up with the church. I know some of you, you're distancing yourself from the church. You're ready to, to walk out the door because the church to you, it, it doesn't reflect your values. It, it's, it doesn't value diversity. The church to you is just this mono, monolithic kind of suffocating institution, right? And, and you're sick of it. And if that's you this morning, I, I want to invite you to take another look at the church around you to take another look at the church across the world and across time. Because no, we do not live up to that mirror image reflected from Revelation 7, but the church is beautifully diverse. The church, in fact, is the most diverse coalition of humans in the history of the world. Across time, across the world, no other movement in human history is as multicultural, multinational, multi-ethnic as this beautiful polychrome people of God as the church. The church is incredibly diverse. And we, I think sometimes we have a caricature in of, our, of our heads of the church. Maybe you think of a Christian in this country and you think of someone who looks like me, a white man, and that's just not the majority, right? Around the world, if you are to meet a Christian, the most likely demographic that you're encountering is a woman of color. In America here, the demographic that is most highly Christian, the highest percentage of Christians, black women. The church is beautifully diverse. Every tribe, tongue, nation, peoples. So there is this reflection, and it's amazing to imagine not just hearing it today, Revelation 7, but the first audience. What did they think? This small, first century, fledgling, embryonic Christian community. And they must have heard that and, and thought either, no way, that can't happen. Not a chance. Or maybe they thought, wow, look what God is already doing. Look where God is taking us. That is the church. There is a resemblance. And yet, we don't live up 
to Revelation 7. Right? We, we don't live up even to our own diversity. Right? We do remain divided. We do remain on Sunday mornings in America more segregated than any other hour of the week. We do fall short. And there is a history with the church that we should be sick to our stomachs over. We should be fed up with the way that all of us fall short, and we should be sick to our stomachs when we read the history of the church and the history of the church in this country with slavery and white supremacy and all the inquisition and crusades and the problems with the church. You're right to be sick about that. But here's why we don't give up on the church. God has a future for his beloved church. Amen? And that future is Revelation 7. God has a future for his beloved church. If you don't believe that, we should give up. We should all walk out the door if it's just up to us. But if you believe that God is faithful and capable and will take us to that future, that's why we don't give up on the church. God has a beautiful future for the church of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so John continues this vision of this heavenly worship in Revelation 7, and picking up in verse 10, he says, This multitude, they cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the picture of the church's future. And it's a triumphant image. It's wonderful. It's amazing. And what's really amazing about these words, salvation belongs to our God, is that in the first century Mediterranean society, salvation didn't belong to God. Salvation belonged to the emperor, right? In that day and age, if you belonged to the Roman Empire, salvation was not with the Lord God. It was not with Jesus. Salvation belonged to the empire. They were the one Ben talked about who delivered this peace and prosperity. They were the one who secured you in your salvation. But the Christian community is singing, salvation belongs to God and to the slain lamb. And they're singing, and it's amazing that they're singing this in every language, every tongue. But notice, they're singing with one voice. Take a look at verse 10 once more. It says, they cried out in a loud voice, saying salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. God's future for the church is a future of unity in diversity. God's future for the church is not one that erases our differences, but that celebrates and transcends them. It's every language, it's every tongue 
one voice, singing that salvation belongs to the God who can unite all of these people under the authority of the slain lamb. That's what the church triumphant looks like. That's our reality, and that's what we begin to reflect even now. The unified, diverse, beautiful church of Jesus Christ. But unity is a strange thing, and unity is a hard thing, and humans are really able to unite or divide around almost anything. And as much as we talk about unity in the church, it also feels like what we really talk about a lot today in the church and especially in our country is, of course, division. It's become a cliche to talk about how divided we are, how partisan we are, how polarized we've become. And that how each of us begins to see the world through this narrow, highly curated lens which drives us further divergent from one another. In fact, there's a book published earlier this year by Ezra Klein, and it's called simply, Why We're Polarized. And there's a chapter in the book that's really interesting. He talks about the psychology of groups and the way that groups can be formed and people can unite. And really, he focuses on this study in the 70s that was done. And these researchers were asking the question, what is the minimum condition for people to form a group? What is you know, the minimum set of conditions for, say, me and Leah to feel like we're in a group and that we can discriminate against Ben? What's just the minimum scenario for that to happen? And so what these researchers did was they took about 60 high school boys and put them in a room together. Brave researchers. And they put up two paintings, one by an artist named Klee and one by an artist named Kandinsky. And they separated the boys based on which of these two paintings they preferred, the Klee or the Kandinsky. They separated the boys into two groups. Then they told them they were moving on to an unrelated experiment where they were going to be allocating money to other people. So the boys are giving money away to other boys. It's not going to come back to them, but they have to decide who and how much to give it away to. And they know which boys liked the Klee and which liked the Kandinsky. And what they found, these researchers, over and over, overwhelmingly, the boys gave more money to the other boys that liked the painting that they liked. The Klee boys gave more money overwhelmingly to the other boys that liked the Klee painting, and the Kandinsky boys gave money to the boys that liked the Kandinsky painting. And even when there were opportunities to give, say, a large amount of money to everyone or a small amount of money to just their painting group, they gave the small amount to just the other kids that liked the painting they liked. So in other words, notice that rather than give everybody a lot of money, they would rather increase the gap between the ones who happen to prefer a random painting and the ones who didn't prefer that same random painting. We can unite and divide over anything. Right? Humans have this incredible ability to unite or divide over even the silliest, most inane, meaningless things. 
And so unity itself is not a virtue we see here. You can be united around something good, something neutral. You can unite around something terrible. Unity of itself is not virtuous. And so the question that the church must ask is not, are we united? The first question we must ask is, who or what is uniting us? Who or what are we uniting around? Because John says that one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. And he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Unity alone is not virtuous. We can unite around anything. Political parties can be united. Hate groups can be united. Boys who happen to prefer one random painting over another can be united. The question for the church is not first are we united, but first who is uniting us? And the picture that John gives us in Revelation 7 of the church triumphant is a church united in the Lamb. A church of every tribe, tongue, people, nation, United in Jesus Christ because it is Jesus' reconciling work that is our unity. That's where it is. It's in the church triumphant. It's in that heavenly worship. It's in Jesus summing up all things. We are united in the Lamb. So that heavenly unity has become our earthly responsibility. That church triumphant unity has become our duty here and now to live into that image. And we know that when tribalism threatens to tear us asunder, we are united in the Lamb. We know when nationalism or politics wants to leave us polarized, we are united in the Lamb. When our marriages fail to the point of breaking, when our children struggle, when our friendships falter, we have our unity in the Lamb. When racism, when classism, when any ism threatens to claim us, we are united in the Lamb the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Church, a higher unity holds us together. We know the ending. 
We've seen October 1st. We've seen Revelation 7. We know the ending. We know the hymns of the church triumphant. And it's in this contested present that we strain always towards that eternal song. The time when we will stand surrounding the throne, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, praising God and the Lamb, saying, salvation belongs to our God. Let's stand and praise Him together right now.